Good to be back with you. I believe I was here about this time last year, according to my notebook. I am dependent upon that notebook to make sure that I don't preach the same message twice at the same place, at least not more often than a year or so. So this is a different sermon this morning. For those of you who know her, uh, my wife sends her regards. She and her mother are usually with me as I go around, but the torch is in the process of being passed. My grandson is preaching over at Southside this morning, and so Grandma needed to be there uh, more than she needed to be here. So. She sends her regards to those of you who know her. This morning, since we are on the threshold of a brand new year, I thought it would be appropriate to preach about something that had to do with, at least in some way, the new year. So I'm going to attempt to do that this morning, but before we do that, I need to pray, and I'll invite you all to join. Father, it's a beautiful Lord's Day today, and we thank you for it. We thank you for this place. We thank you for these people who have turned aside and come to this place, hopefully with the objective to worship to praise, to honor, to glorify you. We thank you for the freedom that we enjoy, that we can come to this place and worship you. I pray that we will have open hearts and minds to receive that which your Holy Spirit would give to us this morning. And we'll be careful to give you the praise in all things in Jesus' name, amen. This uh, message is, as my sermons often are, something of a Bible drill. Uh, if I didn't miscount, I think I've got about 20 scripture references. So unless you are real good at thumbing through your Bible and finding references, uh, you might want to jot them down uh, to make sure that I don't misquote or rest the scriptures, as the Apostle Paul said. I'm always looking for a catchy title, and sometimes I succeed and sometimes I don't. But this morning, I've titled this message, well, couple of titles, and you can pick the one that you think is best. Uh, the more things change, the more they stay the same. We've heard that, and I think it's true in some ways. I've also put it a little more simply, I guess, just things which do not, or things which will not, change this morning in 2019. 
or any other time for that matter, but we're interested in the year just, uh, just before us. My grandmother died in 1986. Is this, yeah, are you gonna turn it down a little bit? I, I, I think it might be just, well I can, I can move it farther down on my shirt if that would be, I don't wanna blow anybody out. Uh, I think you got it, all right. Yeah, my, uh, my grandmother lived to the age of 99. She died in 1986, and she witnessed tremendous change in her lifetime. She came to the town where she met my granddad in a covered wagon, and she saw the advent of electricity and running water and uh, television and telephone and computers and all those sorts of things. My son is 46 and I believe he has seen more change in his 46 years than grandma did in her 99 years. In technology, yes, but also in society. People change. Customs change. Laws change. Social mores change. Churches change. My hairline has changed. Barack Obama, if I remember correctly, campaigned on the slogan, Hope and Change. And I, many of you know that I taught for 23 years at Hannibal Grange. That was a sort of a running joke. I, I always said with my tongue only partway in my cheek, the only constant at HLG was change. If we did it that way last year, we will not do it that way this year. Well, entering 2019, I want us to consider seven things that haven't changed and won't change. I saw the uh, movement of the, the clock so that it was uh, right on, and so I will uh, attempt to watch it and get done with seven points in the same length of time that a normal three-point sermon takes. First of all, and most fundamental, I'm sure you can probably figure this one out, God has not changed. Three verses. affirm that, Malachi 3.6, the one we think of, for I, the Lord, do not change, God says about himself. Then James, James 1.17, every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variation or shadow of turning. And Hebrews 13, 8, speaking of Jesus, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
Now, if you think about it a little bit, you will realize that God cannot change and be God. Why do I say that? Because change implies imperfection. To change, you either got to get better or get worse. If you get better, you weren't perfect to start with. And if you get worse, you aren't perfect anymore. And so you cannot change and still be God perfect from eternity past to eternity future. So God has always been and always will be perfect. And so in 2019, God will not change because he cannot change. Well, that then leads us to several other things that won't change. First of all, or second of all, in, in the uh, points, God's word hasn't changed either. Matthew 24, 35, Jesus said, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words shall not pass away. Now, just in case you missed that, in Mark 13, 31, he says almost exactly the same thing. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not. If you missed it the first two times, he says it again in Luke 21, 33. Same thing. God's word has not changed and will not change. Ask New Yorkers if anything has changed since 2000 in the city where they live. The skyline has changed. Even science changes and fails I, because I taught in the areas of biology and chemistry I naturally gravitate to science for illustrations and so I thought about uh, the lipoprotein sandwich model of the cell membrane when I was doing my undergraduate work we were taught that's the way the membrane surrounding living cells can be understood. It's a, a layer of protein and a layer of lipid on either side like a sandwich. I was convinced of that. Graduated, went in the Navy, came out, went back to graduate school and discovered the lipoprotein sandwich model it was out the window. We didn't believe that anymore. We didn't teach that anymore. Why? Because somebody, why I don't know, had decided it would be interesting to put a cell under some liquid nitrogen, which of course would freeze it, hit it with a hammer and see what happened. Well, what happened was that it destroyed the lipoprotein sandwich model of the cell membrane, and we now, I guess, uh, I haven't really kept up with it, but I think we still teach the fluid mosaic model, which is considerably different. Uh, 
Not just science changes. Archaeology. For years, the skeptics said the Bible is wrong because there's never been any record of any such guy as Quirinius. Now, you remember your Christmas story. This census was made, the Bible says, when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Well, skeptics said there had never been any such governor of Syria until one day when someone discovered a piece of pottery, cleaned it off, deciphered it, guess what? Made reference to Governor Quirinius. So, turned out, Bible was right, archaeology needed to be updated a bit. Well, in 2019, put your faith in something that's certain secure, unchangeable, eternal. Psalm 119, verse 89, says it about as clearly as it's possible to say it, forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. God has not changed. His word has not changed. And God's plan of salvation hasn't changed either. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, definite article. There is a definite article in Greek. It's there. I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Acts 4, 12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. John 3, 3, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say unto you, unless one is born again or born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. John 3, 36, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. It's not what I think. It doesn't make any difference what I think. And it doesn't make any difference what you think either. It only makes a difference what God thinks. Now, if God had not told us what he thinks, then we'd have to figure it out for ourselves, and your idea would be just as good as mine and probably better. But since he did tell us, then we have no excuse. We Christians who are fundamental Bible believers get accused a lot of being intolerant, bigoted, narrow-minded when we say there's only one way. My response is simply, I didn't say it. Jesus said it. If you have a problem, take it up with him. He's the one who said it. Now, I believe that I can understand why that is true, 
we don't have time to go into that this morning because I've got another half a sermon to get through on this subject. But it's fairly straightforward. You can really explain it by using three verses. If you wonder what those are, you can ask me afterward. Our problem is that we don't recognize, we as a, as a people, we as a species, don't recognize the enormity of the sin problem. We know that sin is not good, but it's not really that bad, is it? Well, Isaiah 64, 6 says, All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteousness, all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. There is a interesting story in Matthew chapter 22, verse 9, nine and following, that I read I don't know how many times and didn't understand the significance of what I was reading. You all know the story about the, the wedding and the wedding garment. I'm not going to read the whole thing in the interest of time, but let me read just a few verses here, beginning in verse 9 of chapter 22 in the book of Matthew. Go, therefore, to the main highways. This is the, the person who's giving the, the wedding feast. And as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. <clears throat> so those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good, and the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. But when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw there a man not dressed in wedding clothes. Now, we have to know a little bit about the culture of the day to understand the significance of that. But in any uh, formal wedding, everyone was supposed to wear a certain type of garment. The person who was giving the wedding feast was responsible so that if a person didn't have one, he forgot it, or he wasn't able to afford it, or whatever, the governor of the feast, or the, the uh, one who was putting it on, was responsible for providing a wedding garment. So, in verse 12, well, back in verse 11, he saw there a man not dressed in wedding clothes, and he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And he was speechless. Now, I read that, read that many, many times and thought, well, you know, that's unfortunate, but it's not that big a deal, is it? So he didn't have a wedding garment. Can't we overlook that? Well, notice what the next verse says. Then the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. Isn't that an awfully extreme response to somebody who just didn't have a wedding garment? 
not when you understand what the wedding garment symbolizes. The wedding garment symbolizes the righteousness of Christ. And if you don't have that, you're not qualified to come into the marriage supper. We have to have the righteousness of Christ or we don't get in. Why? Well, because of the next thing that hasn't changed, so let me move on to that and then we'll come back and tie those two together. Not only has God not changed, his word not changed, and his plan of salvation not changed, but God's standards have not changed either. And this is where we find uh, quite a bit of controversy today, and a lot of folks, I think, would probably disagree with me this morning when I say God's standards haven't changed, but that's all right. They have a right to be wrong if they want to be. That was humor. I, uh, I had discovered that I have to let my audiences know when I'm saying something not to be taken seriously because uh, it doesn't always, it's not always apparent. I, uh, I made a statement once and uh, well, I, I quoted something my granddad used to say, I don't mind talking to myself. I like to talk to somebody smart once in a while. Well, I said that in a workplace, and a lady who also worked there took me off in the corner and read me the riot act because of my attitude. I had to explain to her, I wasn't serious. This, this was supposed to be humorous. Well, anyway, uh, God's standards haven't changed. There are a lot of churches, a lot of denominations this morning that would give you some argument about that. But 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14 and following, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Mark 12, 29 and 30, Jesus answered, the foremost is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the next verse, the second is likened to it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Isn't that challenging? I submit that Christianity is the most challenging lifestyle there is. You want a challenge, live the Christian life. Becoming a Christian is easy. All you have to do is believe and receive. 
but being one, acting like one after you've become one, pretty high standards. Be holy. Love God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. Be salt. Be light. God's standard for righteousness is even higher than these things. You know what God's standard of righteousness is? Perfection, that's all. Just have to have perfect righteousness before you get into a perfect, holy kingdom. But I can't do that. And neither can you. And God knew that before he ever created the world. And that's why he made available to us the righteousness of Christ, which is perfect. And that's the standard. That's the wedding garment. And that standard has not changed and will not change. And it would be pretty rough on all of us if God hadn't provided it for us. So God's plan of salvation then is simply to recognize we can't do it and receive that which has already been done for us. Somebody said, I wish I'd said this, but I didn't. Don't know who to give credit for it, but someone said every other religion in the world and even some who don't understand Christianity can be summarized by the word do. You gotta do something, I've gotta do something. Christianity, true Christianity, is the only religion that can be summarized with the word done. It's all been done. That's what Jesus meant on the cross when he said it is finished. Everything that needs to be done has been done. We simply have to believe it and receive it and accept it. God's standards have not changed. Got lots of time. The fifth thing that I would suggest has not changed and will not change, God's methods have not changed. God still works through prayer. First Thessalonians 5.17, Paul said, pray without ceasing. Now there's some confusion about that word that's translated there. If you go to the Greek and look it up, what Paul said was not that you must pray 24-7, 365, even while you're asleep, pray without ceasing. What he said, the, the word that's used there, means don't give up, don't quit. Keep on praying until you get an answer. Now, it's true that occasionally that answer is no. Okay, if God says no, then you can stop. Otherwise, you pray and you continue to pray until you get the answer. That's what pray without ceasing means, and that's one of the prerequisites for God working 
on our behalf. We, he still works through prayer. He still works, fortunately for those of us who do this sort of thing, he still works through the foolishness of preaching. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 and following, the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness, and he's using that term, uh, tongue-in-cheek there, of the message, the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. He still works through the gospel message and those who proclaim it. His methods still involve the weak. Moving a little further into that first chapter, beginning verse 27, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen the things that are not that he might nullify the things that are so that no man should boast before God God still uses humble weak surrendered people First Peter chapter 5, verse 5 and 6. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. God still works through prayer. He still works through the gospel message and those who proclaim it. He still uses humble, weak people to get his message out because that gives him greater glory. And if you haven't been counting, we're up to number six now. I believe we're going to make it. God's promises haven't changed either. And they're not going to change. Acts 1, 9. After he said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on and a cloud received him out of their sight this is what we commonly call the ascension and as they the disciples were gazing intently into the sky while he was departing 
Behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them, and they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. The last thing we hear from him is the promise he's going to come back. Same way he went, and now, perhaps because of satellite TV and cell phones and all the other technology, every eye shall see him. Perhaps it's due to something, something miraculous. But he has promised to return. And he has promised that that's a, a one time for everybody return, but we all know that that hasn't happened yet. So there's another promise that each and every one of us that know the Lord as our Savior can hang on to until that everybody sees return, and that's the one he made there in John chapter 14. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. And here's the key. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will receive, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there you may be also. That promise hasn't changed. Someday, I don't think very long, he's going to come back for all of his saints that are alive at that time, what we call the rapture. But in the meantime, he's continuing to come for each of those who have used up their time and it's, it's their appointment. Each and every one of us has a divine appointment. Hebrews 9.27, you are appointed once to die. I'm so thankful that it doesn't say twice. We don't get to choose the first time but we don't have to experience the second death. Jesus said, be born again, and then you only die once. Everybody that's been born is either born once and dies twice, or is born twice and dies once. And that's not going to change. That's a promise. Well, the last thing that hasn't changed and isn't going to change, our commission has not changed either. Everybody knows the Great Commission, so-called. Many of us memorized that when we were way down in Sunday school. Let me read it just for 
review. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's what we're supposed to be about until either he comes for us individually or he comes for all of his children. And that hasn't changed. God has not changed. His word has not changed. His plan of salvation hasn't changed. His standards haven't changed. His methods haven't changed. His promises haven't changed. And his commission hasn't changed. And I can stand here this morning with the greatest confidence and tell you that if he delays his coming for another year, we can go into 2020 with the same sermon, with the same certainty. Hang your hat on things that will not change regardless of what happens in 2019, and it may get, it may get kind of rough. It's getting rougher all the time for those of us who name the name of Jesus. God's not going to change. 